So, hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the Sport and History podcast. My name is Connor Heffernan and I'm very happy to be joined today by Mike Cronin. Mike has been the Academic Director of Boston College in Ireland since 2005, as I say, 1905. Um, Jesus, that really would have done you a disservice. Um, and Mike is someone very well known to sport historians in Ireland, in the UK and in North America as well. So I'm very happy to get him on. So Mike, I'll begin by A, apologizing for really aging you in about 20 seconds. And B, maybe asking you just to introduce yourself and then we can move into sort of your transition into sport history. Sure. So thank you, Connor. Um, so yeah, I did my degree in history down at the University of Kent, um, down in Canterbury, um, which was, yeah, a very good, very good course. Um, and then moved up to Birkbeck in uh, London, where I started my PhD. And my PhD was with Roy Foster um, and was on the blue shirt. So it was a whole kind of work on comparative kind of European fascist studies uh, and putting the Irish into that context. Um, and then with a the big, actual in terms of the research, a big use of oral history, which is obviously something that came back later in my career as well. Um, so, yeah, in a way, I kind of started off life as a sort of straight up political historian um, and sport came much later. And were the blue shirts, the <laughs> sounds a loaded question when you begin with, were the blue shirts, but were the blue shirts the sort of bridgeway into sport or how did that happen from political history into sporting history? They did. Well, I always, I think, I think in the way I've curated my understanding of my own life, I think two things happened, one of which was... Um, when I was interviewing these guys, I think they interviewed about 70 of them all told. It was a long time ago. Um, these were men sort of in the sort of late 1980s, early 1990s. And these men were all of a kind of similar age. They were kind of aging dramatically. Um, and obviously, you know, a lot of them were small farmers in rural Ireland and, you know, weren't keen to have long, intense theoretical discussions about what fascism meant. But when they were explaining their kind of relationship with the blue shirts, a lot of them started talking about how the blue shirts organised sporting events, sporting clubs, social, so cycling, tennis, boxing, all these different things. And it always, I wrote a small article about their kind of leisure life. It appeared in a thesis and in a book. But it just struck me at the time, I suppose this is the second part of it, that uh, by that point, I was being supervised by Roy Foster, who moved to Oxford and was writing the first volume of his big biography of Yates. And I was aware that kind of when I went off to the seminars in Oxford, I was surrounded by people who were doing Irish history. Too. It just always struck me that, you know, if you're living in rural islands, you may have a relationship to the Irish literary revival. You may go up to Dublin to go to the Abbey Theatre, but it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, what do the bulk of Irish people use to kind of have an interplay with identity? And I suppose sport and then the kind of peculiarity or the singularity of the Gaelic Athletic Association came to the fore. Uh, and I think that's when I was started scouting around for um, a postdoctoral subject. Um, that's where I kind of made the official kind of leap into sport, that I was really intrigued by the question of how national identity was, you know, hinged on 
certain form related to that, you know, at a, at a first glance, uh, a very kind of sectarian identified sort of array of sports that were operating differently, were competing differently, had very different histories. Um, so that was the kind of, I suppose, the belly flop into the world of sport and sports history. Belly flop, it's uh, probably a good way to put it, given how much you've published on it. Um, and when you start to move into sport history in Ireland, like obviously I'm thinking like Mandel has published stuff, but the actual climate for the study of sport history in Ireland, can you describe what that was like? Because we're not exactly in a golden age now, but it's a lot different. Uh, it was, I mean, also I was living in England at the time, so I kind of, I kind of knew, knew, didn't know them personally at that point, but I kind of knew people like Dick Holt's work and Ray Van Vliet's work and the idea that sports history was a thing. Um, and presumed that when I was moved into looking at this from an Irish perspective, I would find a rich array of texts and books and found a desert. Um, I was look, actually looking the other day in lieu of doing this at my sport and nationalism book, which came out in it, and realised that I had kind of sectionalised the bibliography. So, you know, the text on nationalism runs to four and five pages, the same for the section on Irish history. I think even the bibliographies that pertain to sport generally ran to three or four pages and the section on Irish sport barely covered a page. Now, that's either my terrible research, which I don't think it is. It's really just a sign of how little there was out there. I mean, as you say, there was people like W.F. Mandel's work, um, which was probably the only truly scholarly book. Uh, and then there was a lot of kind of um, studies of different sports, like Marcus de Berker's work on the GA, Van Asperger's book on rugby, but I wouldn't call them academic in a classic kind of scholarly way. Uh, and then it would have been a smattering of the kind of sociological stuff that um, Alan Benn and John Sugden were doing up in the north. But that was very contemporary, very kind of sport and sectarianism. Um, so, yeah, there was, nothing, there was nothing or very little there. Um, and that was the strange thing. I think when I was doing my PhD, I wanted to talk to people about, you know, the blue shirts and post-independence history. Or you wanted to talk to them about fascism. You just kind of ran around Oxford and London and Dublin and talked to people. And they kind of were interested and they were experts. Whereas I found when I arrived back in Ireland doing the sports stuff, there was nobody who really wanted to talk to me who was sitting in a university because they just didn't see it um, as a real subject, a genuine subject. No, I don't know what the resistance was, but it was a complete absence. And it, it's funny to think, because that book's published in 99, and then it seems like, you know, over the next 10 years, that it, it starts to shift at least some way into we're getting more scholarly work in that sense. Can you remember what the reception was to sport and nationalism? Because obviously this is one of the first sort of encompassing monographs around sport in Ireland? Uh, it got reviewed very well. Uh, it sold okay. There you go. Um, I mean, I think the reaction was very good by and large in the sense of just that idea of possibility that a scholarly work could look at sports seriously. I mean, and I think, to be honest, that's a... That's a problem that we've all had, and I'm sure everybody else has talked to you about this, their work and what they've been doing. I mean, it's a, it's a problem I think we all face that, you know, as a historian who's trained, you take a professional view on sport uh, and other people follow your work 
around you, and that's that's all to the good. Has sport made the jump into mainstream history, if we want to call it that? That if you pick up your national survey, does sport feature? And I still think that's the fundamental problem. That you know, you look at things like the in recent years, the kind of multi-volume Cambridge histories of Ireland or the Gill series from a few years ago. The people doing the 1920th century might have done a little bit on, or, or featured a, a, an essay on the GA perhaps, but the idea that sport is something central in our society, I still wonder whether that jump's been made. Um, but in, in a way, though, yeah, so the reaction was good. I mean, I think what was most telling was that then I had a succession of people came to me. I was still in, I was in Leicester at the International Centre for Sports History at the time. Um, people like Liam O'Callaghan, people like Tom Hunt came to me to do PhDs with me. Uh, across the Irish Sea, as it were, um, because they couldn't find people who were willing to supervise them in Ireland, um, which, again, I think is quite telling that Irish history departments at that point, at the turn of the century, late 90s, early noughties, just weren't seeing it as a subject that was serious or worthwhile or weren't uh, didn't know how to do it, perhaps. They felt unsure about the archives. No, I don't know what it was that was holding people back. Um, I think probably Paul Rouse, in institutional terms, probably had the biggest impact in Ireland in terms of just somebody who was uh, did his PhD, not, not on sport, but you know started working on sport very seriously, came from a very serious sports background, was Irish, I think that made a difference. And obviously then within UCD could kind of institutionalise sports history. I was always doing it from the outside. Um, kind of even when I moved here, I obviously don't work for an Irish university. Um, but yeah, I think between Paul and myself and a few other people, there was a sort of growing number of PhD students. We were probably lucky they were all very good PhD students um, who then took, as it were, I suppose, big ideas but then started applying them to regional studies, greater kind of understandings of how social class worked in and around sport, all these different themes started being unpicked at different levels. So in a way, I suppose you went very quickly from almost of being nothing at the end of the 90s to by the time you reach the 2010s, there being lots. Um, yeah. And I think that was a, a kind of a, a very positive step in a way that sports history grew. Uh, and I think, yeah, I, I think increasingly that history departments were able to understand that if an undergraduate came wanting to do a special subject or a dissertation or an MA thesis, um, then that, that was okay. You could let them do it because it wasn't just scores and famous players. They're actually going to do some history that happened to be in the area of sport. And do you think, like, looking at, say, Liam and Tom Hunt's work, which is so... And then later people like Conor Kern and Pat Bracken, et cetera. Those like deep regional studies that uncover, you know, every every rock, the social class, looking at these deep networks within communities was a reaction almost to that. Like, look and see. It's not just scores. It's not just like, you know, Christy Ring. It's not the great players. Like this is embedded in those broader histories because there is a regional turn in Irish sport history that you don't necessarily get in England at the same time. No, you don't. I mean, I think um, probably Dave Russell and Jeff Hill's work with Jack Williams in and around the North uh, is probably the only real equivalent. Um, 
you know, for example, I mean, there's probably still a sort of a great deal of work to be done on kind of metropolitan centres and regions in the UK that hasn't happened here. Um, I think that the, the great thing about the people you mentioned, um, in a way, the, the, the sort of brilliant thing about them was that they didn't just write a sports history of, in Tom's case, Tom Hunt's case, for example, of Westmead. They really kind of wrote a history. I mean, it's Tom's work, Liam's work on kind of rugby and Munster, Connor's work on Donegal. They're very nuanced. They go way beyond just the sporting context. They're really concerned about you know, people's occupations. What 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 is it they do and how does this then fit into their sporting practice um it's to do with place it's to do with garrison towns that relationship with anglo-irish british society and then local irish society so i think that what, what was amazing was in a way how quickly irish sports history got to be good if that doesn't <laughs> sound a strange thing to say and what i mean by that is it kind of it, because it had so many good models from the UK and elsewhere, and I think you know the importance of um, people like Raymond Clue's work, people like Mike Huggins. I think critically, Tony Collins actually, um, Tony Mason to a degree as well, but Tony Collins definitely. People just a model of kind of how an, a, a kind of really informed history of something that is through the lens of sport can be done. Um, and I think that that's that's important that the quality of sports history has by and large in Ireland been very, very high. I also think it's I mean, I think it's a it's a debate that I would have had in the International Centre in the um late nineties, early two thousands when I was there in Leicester, was this kind of issue, I think, compared to maybe the US, which was always that sports history in Britain had done well in terms of the people who did it first had their training in history they'd always done something else before they turned to sport um which meant you didn't have in like you do in the us uh people coming through i'm not saying anything wrong with this but i'm just saying you know if, if you if you trained in kinesiology or sports science or sports studies you are not by definition an historian you know you can deal with the past and you can do that but i don't think i don't think you interrogate it the same way whereas i think irish sports history was lucky that the people who came to it to do their PhDs and publish um, and had really come through kind of real old school history degrees and history departments um, and they when they turned their attention to sport their work benefited for that and yeah I think it is interesting to look at say you mentioned like you know Liam and Tom and just the ongoing influence that has on New PhDs like Julian Clanant, who's just finished with Paul, has done like that deep regional work on Dublin. Connor Murray in DCU has done this like macro yep. but still very detailed history in the 20th century. So there is that sort of the benchmark is sort of set at a graduate level for that deep history that engages with class, with place, with space in different ways. And I think that's an interesting lineage when looking at the dozen or so you know studies that we have. Yeah, I do think the one thing there, that, I mean, I think it's, it's. I do wonder sometimes whether the regional history, okay, first of all, the regional history in the Irish county system gave you a clear space, a clear boundary. Um, you know, and again, some like Pat Bracken's deep work on Tipperary 
um, the depth of it, the range of sports, the questions asked of Tiferari were brilliant. But I do wonder sometimes whether that was a way of avoiding a sort of straight up kind of political history or rather history of political conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think one of the one of the problems I would have had when I wrote sport and nationalism, I think the problem when you look at um, John Sugden Allen Berner's work, uh, Dave Hassan, who came after them, is once you're dealing with the whole island, you're dealing with the north and you're dealing with conflict. And really at that critical point into the early noughties, you're dealing with a fluid post-conflict society and none of us really knew how that would play out. Uh, and I think we all probably wrote chapters and articles which kind of either were looking at the latter years of the Troubles or kind of ending with a, with a flourish, mm-hmm. um, not knowing where that would go. And I think in a way that was that was our collective problem, that we all stopped writing history and started writing contemporary political science. I'm not saying that's invalid, but I think the regional study, because it rooted it more deeply in space and place, you could you could avoid the context of, of of a of a contemporary northern conflict, whereas clearly, even though in a county um, study of the republic, you would deal with the Irish revolutionary periods. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's yeah. definitely historical at that point. So you could factor in the idea of the presence of the British army, the presence of conflict. Uh, you know, fighting during the war of independence, fighting during of war and how that played out and the changes that came from that conflict. Um, but a free state kind of area um, did make the history better because you weren't dealing with that ongoing legacy issue or lived issue or live issue, if you like, of, of the Northern conflict. And it, it is interesting because sport is such a vessel for that. Like if you think... Your book is published three or four years after the England-Ireland game is uh, called off in Lansdowne Road because of the riot with a lot of yep. sectarian chanting. And then even like going later into the noughties when the GA ground, Croke Park, lets in the rugby and football, there's sort of a collective conversation around both the War of Independence, but then also the Troubles and what that means. So like, there's almost a double jeopardy for sport historians because sport is often a conduit for those sectarian animosities. Yeah, and I think, I think, to be honest, that's been a problem for from the Irish sports history. A nice problem in some ways, but I mean, in terms of, if you think about somebody who's writing a history of British sports history, you know, you might look at Matt Taylor's work on um, sport during the war or the kind of mass material that came out around how sporting bodies responded to the First World War. It's, it's not actually dealing with a society that in itself is in conflict. Mm. And I think what happens in the Irish case, that not only do you have the kind of the outliers of GAA, which we can probably talk about later, but I think you also then have the context, which is sport in a an island of conflict where roughly, what, 40 of the 100 years of the 20th century are years of conflict. Um which means, in a way, you know, I find myself, I've been to conferences where, you know, we're talking about the sport in conflict or sport in peace, um, that your natural <coughs> uh, comparisons are much more 
um, you know, somewhat like the interwar Germany or its um, pre and post division career, etc. I mean, it's kind of Ireland then becomes this kind of bizarrely um, excessive place where sport has not existed in peace. Whereas you look at the 20th century for most countries, not all, but most, uh, sport has largely existed, modern contemporary sport has largely existed in a kind of peaceful environment. And I think that does provoke a different set of challenges for how we do this. Um, because you can either, I love bracket sport nationalism, it's 20 or something years old now, I've probably over-egged it. Um, because I think the remarkable thing about um, sport on this island is that while sectarianism and conflict has been around it, um, it's, it's carried on, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sporting practices, sporting events, sporting competition has been disrupted at various times by the revolution and by the northern conflict, but it never stopped. It never got derailed. People didn't cease from playing their football or their soccer or whatever it may be. Um, I think sometimes it, it's it's too easy to go for the for the political context because that's the big story, and actually not to concentrate on lived lives. And I think that's that kind of the idea of you know we're back to the kind of origins of sports history in a way. But I mean that kind of social history movement in the sixties onwards of um, history from below. If we're below as the people who do sport, then most of the time they just get on with it, perspective or in defiance of the political context. Yeah, I think it's funny. Um, Brian Griffin published an article on sport during the famine. Um, I think in the Irish Economic and Social History Journal, which is such an, a wonderful Brilliant illustration Brilliant of that. Article, yeah. Because you think yeah. you know, there's the broader macro narrative of this humanitarian disaster, but then we have the undercurrent of, for some life continued in sport, as you say, even in revolutionary periods or disruptive periods has that. And actually on, I suppose, those areas that Irish sport historians have sort, sort of looked at or haven't looked at, like I'm interested in what you think are some of the lacunas or gaps, because I know in 2009 you published um, What's Wrong With Counting or What Went Wrong With Counting, which I was always a great title, where you argued for <laughs> that sort of traditional like Ray Vamplu sort of you know, economic history approach for both British and Irish sports. So, you know, looking 10 odd years on, what do you think are some of the other like areas that haven't yet been tapped outside of the obvious, like, so women's sport history in Ireland is in need of growing yeah. and Hayley Kilgallen at UCD is doing work on ladies football, which is great, Helena Byrne on soccer, et cetera. But some of the maybe methodological areas that haven't been played with yet. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, I mean, what went wrong with counting that was, <laughs> an essay for and about Ray Van Flew's work. So when I worked with Ray, his, his standard question to a new PhD student, as because obviously Ray was an economic historian, um, was what are you going to count? And my <laughs> argument was, you know, we don't need to count things, Ray. Um, in a way, he's probably right. That's a whole different story. I mean, to answer your question, I, mean, I think, yeah, I think there's issues, I mean, that sort of, there are now people working on women's sport, um, Questions of gender, etc. I mean, the people you mentioned, uh, Katie Liston, is, it's, it's growing. Um, I think, again, compared to the UK, the US, Australasia, most of Central Mainland Europe, uh, the amount of gender-based, gender-questioning sports history we have in Ireland is very, very small. 
Um, I think that's been one of our collective failures. Um, and I think that doesn't just extend to kind of working on women. I think it also works, extends to Patrick McDevitt's work being one of the very few that took it as a, as a real issue. But I mean, it doesn't really extend to masculinity. I don't think any of us have really questioned. Uh, I, know, I know you have in your work, but I mean, in terms of thinking here of, of team sports, I mean, I don't think anybody's really questioned about the kind of issues of masculinity, rugby versus Gaelic versus soccer. I don't think that's been, been an apparent, um, which which is interesting. I mean, again, going back to kind of political context, you would think given that, um, you know, the, the headline idea behind the GA was almost, you know, how the GA easily slipped into drilling militarily in 1913-14, um, is again the idea of how sport in Ireland functions as a bridge between the sporting masculinity, masculinity and a kind of war masculinity. Um, so I think that's one area. Um, I think, you know, Jimmy Kelly's work has been brilliant. Um, I think you know, an obvious criticism that's been levelled at people like myself and Paul and most of us is always we are very overly concerned with modern, mm-hmm. so post-codification kind of Victorian sport onwards. I still think there's a lot of work. I mean, you mentioned Brian Griffin there, Jimmy Kelly, there's other people. I think our knowledge of the pre-1850s is not as good as it should be. Um, uh, I think... One thing I think, again, it's starting to happen, but I'd say a cultural understanding of Irish sport or how Irish sport functions in other cultural forms and is represented and how the two speak. Um, you know, I've done some work and other people have, but I mean, you know, given the, given the sort of sheer strength of kind of literary history and an appreciation of literature in this country, the bridge between um, drama, poetry, literature and sport in Ireland is something that's not been mm-hmm. worked on. If in mind, you know, we all we all come up with a with a nice quote from uh you know McGahan or or whoever chose to wrote about sport, but we didn't really it's not been done. Uh I think the same is true of the kind of visual arts. And I mean that very broadly. Uh again you kind of look at uh people like Mike Huggins and Menyman the others in the UK who started looking at that kind of visual turn in sport, uh, you know, apart from one exhibition in a national gallery, God, 15 years ago, which was more broadly on leisure, um, you know, there's not much been done, even though, you know, from Sean Keating on, there's, there's, a, you know, there's a fair weight of kind of visual representation of, of, of um, sport in, in Ireland. Um, I think one thing which again i'd say is is lacking is a bridge given that you look at years ago when i was in um, the uk i did a project between de montford and the university of manchester their welcome center we did a project on the history of sports medicine in britain um and again given the sort of the rise of the medical humanities um there's been very little here which is bridging that gap that you know we've tended to look as the history of medicine and medical humanities do we tend to look at illness not wellness mm-hmm. um again it's kind of why your work's so important um i think is that you've started to bridge that gap um but i think there's lots of issues which um you know again if i was looking at how sport relates to kind of medicine wellness and so on um 
the idea to have a body which is so kind of active at the grassroots level as the GA for the sake of argument, what does that mean to kind of Irish well-being hmm. over 100 and something years? Because participation rates are, and comparative to most of Europe, have remained very, very high. You know, it has been this huge societal benefit because of that. Um, and I think the final thing, again, kind of thinking about kind of minds and bodies, um, I think there's probably a lot of really interesting work that's starting to come down the line that somebody needs to put into the sporting environment, which is about kind of ability disability, about neurodivergence, um, about the fact that something like the special, the special Olympics as a movement here is valorised as a good thing, yet isn't particularly worked on, isn't understood academically. Again, it's been work in the UK. Um, Irish Paralympians, Irish Paralympics movement. You know, I think there's all these different levels. I'm not, and I'm not saying you should just start going picking off special interest groups. I think it's really trying to understand this kind of the function of sport within a society, how we look at it, how we perceive it, uh, what it does for the participants, what the social value of that is, and that. I mean, it sounds when you talk about it very. Um, contemporary but I mean there's such a long tradition even in the old old days of dark days of kind of uh, people being cared for in institutions um, but sport was part and parcel of their life so I think again it's those kind of you know broadly again broadly medical humanities questions I think is something that we've not got quite got to um, but again I mean I think you know even if you take man as your starting point you're talking about a 30 years history what's history with Ireland, which compares probably to kind of 50 in Britain as a much bigger place with many more people. I think what we've managed to cover collectively in those three decades is quite remarkable. Uh, and it's very easy to say, we should have done more of this or we should now do that. Um, I think you then hit a structural issue that obviously one of the things that allowing for the scale of Britain, one thing that changes the game in Britain is that you can do physical education PE mm -hmm. for your A level at 18. You can go to many, 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 many universities and do sports studies, of which kind of sociology, history are part and part of that study. So you do have that emergence of many more people within to uh, within kind of postgraduate programs who have an awareness of the issues in and around sport. Whereas in Ireland, you just have really nothing at school level, nothing at undergraduate level apart from modules. Mm -hmm. um, so really your kind of your body body of work is going to emerge from a few brave or misguided souls uh, who decide to pursue postgraduate work. And I think that that, you know, necessarily that shrinks the field. Therefore you can't do all the things that you maybe should think we should be doing. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the broader tension then because when Historians in other fields in Ireland look at sport, they look at the sort of surface level. There'll be a throwaway comment to gymnastics in a Borstal prison or nationalism in the GA, but it's very much tangential, um, even still in many different ways, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it relies on kind of um, people with a kind of broader remit. So, I mean, if you think about something like Will Murphy, I mean, Will's predominant work is kind of 
PhD and so on was on kind of political prisoners. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he is in deep with the kind of usual lingua franca of kind of Irish political history. Yet, because Will has a sporting interest, he was able to take all that uh, historical training, all that kind of political knowledge, all that knowledge of the Irish landscape, and start applying it to those kind of essays he's written on um, kind of politics and the Irish hunt, for example. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's... It's it's sometimes just been a, a product of, of very good historians, fortunately having the interest to write about sport, um, rather than necessarily a kind of a program where we take people from eighteen to twenty five and they have been trained through. Mm-hmm. And something actually, I think, looking at how sport relates to broader issues, it's in preparing this. It was interesting to think of when your book is published on nationalism and sport in ninety nine. Within a 10-year period then yourself, Will, Paul Rouse and Mark Duncan are going to be part of this like all-encompassing work on the GA, which actually I think did a great deal in sort of forcing historians like myself who came after you to look at lived experience and what sport meant sort of in that individual sense, but also the county sense and the country sense. How difficult a project was that in the sense of like it really, it did a huge amount of work in a number of different fields. And it's quite interesting to think that, you know, we mentioned Max de Berka, like within a 10-year period of your book being published, the GA is saying, oh, we want to do our centenary and we want historians traditionally understood to be a part of that. Yeah, I think to be honest, I mean, I think one thing was that I do think there's a context that the GA changed dramatically just as sports history really got going Mm -hmm. uh, in Ireland. Obviously, you know, you 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 had the Celtic Tiger, which meant Ireland was suddenly a world of possibility. Uh, the troubles came to an end, uh, and a GAA became a very different. It, 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 I think it became a less, a much less retrenched nationalist organisation. And I think also you'd had that whole idea where, because the GAA had been so concerned about the growth of soccer under Jack Charlton, you had that kind of what I call the corporatization of the GAA. So you had the kind of rebuild of Croke Park, but then you suddenly had sponsorship deals and, you know, a permanent staff put into into run the GAA kind of PLC, if you like, um, which again changed the notion of how they understood their own self-image. Um, so, yeah, they were coming up to their 125th anniversary. Um Nicky Brennan was the president at the time, and I happened to be chatting to him about something completely different, but we started talking about their 125th anniversary, which I think they they knew they wanted to celebrate. Um, But we went and saw him, and then Mark Duncan, Paul Rouse, myself started chatting to um, Nicky, to Giles Burns was instrumental in it, that if you understood the GAA... uh, a community voluntary membership organisation, not just something that had been seen probably politically, administratively within the academic setting, and then in a general setting as great players, great matches. In a way, what had been published missed the story, which was the hundreds of thousands of millions of people over 125 years who had lived their life through the GA, who had committed to it, be they in urban Dublin Uh, in the context of the North or within kind of rural Ireland. So that was where the idea of the oral history project came from. It ran from 2008 to 2012. 
Uh, we we interviewed something around 1,500, 1,400 people. Mm-hmm. I think the full collection, which is online and in the GA archives, runs to something around 20,000 hours of interviews. Um, it's massive. I mean, it's just, <laughs> the, it's vast. But, I mean, the, the great thing is if you go and listen to those, um, I think the oldest person we interviewed was just over 100. The youngest was sort of 18, 19, and everything in between. Um, it was really having people to talk about how this sports organisation, how the day-to-day and week-by-week going to games, underage training, playing, whatever they were doing, how that had defined their life, um, how that had gotten through, you know, employment, unemployment, marriage, death, how it got them through their lived experience. And I think it, it's the voices in there are fascinating because they really do speak to that idea that I think especially in a contemporary sort of media age where sports folks are all consuming and we're obsessed by the English Premier League and so on, it really kind of put it in a different place that this was one activity that people did. They worked, they raised families, they lived a life, etc. But this one sporting um, organisation really gave them something. Sense of community, sense of physicality, something to do. Um, you know, answer the question in lots of different ways. Um, but I think that real idea that what you were talking about was individual histories, individual life narratives, um, was something, again, I think too often we don't do in sports history. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to your idea of uh, challenges or new topics, I think it's not a new topic, but it's a challenge. I think the one thing that's been great in recent years has been the digitization of newspapers. Uh, I think the kind of Irish history newspaper archive online is stunning. But I think it's also been damaging in some ways that we are so readily kind of mining. We're almost strip mining. You know, we we get into the various regional local newspapers. We strip mine all the sport. We pile up. We kind of read it. We put it into tables and graphs. And we do very clever things with it, which have to be done. But it's that notion of, first of all, we're taking newspapers as gospel truth, which is problematic uh, from an evidential kind of historiographical point of view. But secondly, we're seeing it again through another kind of mediated lens. It's not the state papers. It's not the level of kind of <coughs> the pinnacle of who runs a country or the minutes of an association. It's reportage. But again, it's not the voices of the people who are involved. And I think in a way, that's what the GA Oral History Project was trying to not correct, but at least for future scholars, offer a vast archive where you can really see how sport relates to the personal. Yeah, and for me, so there's a fascinating book published in Scotland a couple of years ago now by Eileen McRae, which is Exiles Across the Life Cycle for Women. And she does sort of a similar approach where she interviews them about, you know, their sporting interests, but it's actually really about marriage and life and death and work and menses, you know, all these other things. So someone, oftentimes people ask, is there an Irish equivalent? I say, well, like there's the GA archive where it's about the GA, but actually it's about rural life. It's about urban life. It's about growing up in Ireland in 30, 40s, 50s. And as you said, sport is like one thread of that human experience. I think it's such a difficult thing to actually capture and it's also so amazing that the GA 
I know that we have Celtic Tiger uh, optimism at the time, but it's funny to contrast that with, say, the FAI's recent centenary, where they have a lovely website. They did a commemorative jersey. I think there was a match against Belgium. But it, it was a different type of celebration that maybe wasn't as introspective and, like I said, like really digging into what it meant to be an Irish football fan over the last 100 years. Yeah, and I think that whole idea of how, if, if, again, if, if we were in charge of the FBI, you and I would have done it completely differently and it would have cost them a few in the way. But I mean, I do think, yeah, that, that historical question of, you know, how does following a League of Ireland team, which is a kind of minority pursuit as it were, how does that work? You know, how have people kind of gone through that? How does it affect their identity? And even, even now, it's obviously, I mean, looking back at the Charlton years, that's three something decades ago. Um, you know, that sort of headline, I suppose, sports journalists would sort of capture that those years as being almost the Italian 90 gave birth to the Celtic Tigers somehow. Um, you know, but what again? I know there was at a time, few years afterwards, there's a few kind of you know collective stories and so on, but it. What did that really mean for the country as a kind of historical idea? You know, how how do, how would you go about capturing that? Uh, and I think again, that's you're probably right. The FAI probably kind of missed a trick in not using that centenary from a from a historical point of view more wisely. Because yeah, people just... are fascinated by um, those those centenaries. I mean, you see that in the decade of centenaries uh, here, and people. Interest in you know the First World War, nineteen sixteen, and then we go from there. That these kind of they are artificial constructs. But I mean, if you want to get people to focus on what what it the past history means, then they are good vehicles to use. And there is probably a bit of bitterness in my question because I just love an opportunity to to <laughs> dig in and be fun to do it. But ne- never mind. M- moving because I'm conscious of your time from, say, the GA Oral Project, something that I think you did a great job on, but it's one of those wonderful opportunities that's also an albatross around your neck is you published the short history of sport um, with OUP, you know, these sort of like beginners, historical yep, guides. A very, very short introduction. A very short introduction, which is yep. simultaneously incredible, but also like that's a very difficult thing to do. How did that challenge you, say, as a historian? Because you're always aware of oh, I can't cut this, or if I cut this, or if I leave this out. And this, by its nature, forces it to be that condensed uh, form of history. I think, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I went to OUP with the idea. Obviously, the series had been long running at that point. Uh, And I think my pitch was, again, you know, if you're doing things like Diaspora or Derrida or whatever it may be, it seems strange that you're not doing something on this, this huge phenomena in the world called sport. Um, and wasn't I a clever person for getting the contract and then thinking in a way, as you say, oh, dear God, um, I've now got to do everything in 30,000 words. Um, and I think in a, it, it was probably a response to um, teaching in Demontford, and I still do it, um, the FIFA master, which... For those people who don't know about it, it's a, a course where uh, people in their 20s and 30s, late 20s and 30s come to De Montfort, then um, Baconi in Italy, and then 
in uh, Merstone, Switzerland. Uh, and they do the fifth FIFA Master, which is Law, Business and Humanities Heritage, which was a Leicester angle. Um, but they recruited, the students are recruited about 28, 29 of them each year from around the world. And it was the first time in my life where I stood in front of a class thinking I knew everything and just having my Anglo slash Eurocentricism just torn apart and fall in front of me because somebody puts up their hands. You know, I'm from Azerbaijan. What you're talking about is fairy tales. Um, <laughs> or you're faced with a student from Japan or, you know, wherever it may be in the world. And just I think that was really useful in the very short introduction was trying to understand the commonality of sport in the contemporary it, it's everywhere um be that national forms be that you know the nfl the epl what you know indian premier league cricket whatever um but also the idea that you then go back to um very european and british roots affecting her modern team sports and I think what I was most interested by historically was how, for all the ways sport became globalised and changed, that the Victorian British roots of so many of the ideas behind it remain. I mean, just the idea that, you know, we'd be, you, <coughs> you watched the Champions League match last night, no matter how many millions those players are being paid, no matter everything that's invested in them to make them the best athlete they can be, the most competitive, the psychology, everything that works to make that team the best team they can be, they're all supposed to kind of shake hands and almost three cheers for the other side at the end of it, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Um, but it's just the idea that how so many of those Victorian origin points have such deep roots within um, contemporary sports. So, yeah, it was a... It was it was it was a great project to do. Um, they were very strict on the word limits, so you couldn't get away with that. But yeah, it's probably a book of emissions rather than inclusions. But uh, um, I think it is. It's, it's trying to answer that kind of it, the, why the global phenomenon. I think is, is it was a sort of basic question. And it's funny. I was listening to an interview with Peter Reed um, a few days ago, where he talked about you know this idea of the managers having the drinks after the game, and how. The, the sort of good foreign managers are the ones who come around and embrace this English tradition, which again is a very gentlemanly, you know, the, the combat has ended now. We we have drinks and talk about, you know, uh, politics or world world culture, whatever we want. Just a funny link we talked about Arsene Wenger is, you know, he, he got it eventually and he understood what it was about, uh, not thinking about what it was, um, but maybe that's un unfair to Peter Reid. So, Winding this down, and feel free to be um, as blunt as blunt as possible. Bearing in mind that Paul Rouse was my advisor, so used to these questions. What should I have asked you about, but either in terms of say your own development and trajectory as a historian of Irish sport, or just the development of the field in Irish sport? So I suppose we haven't talked about Sport History Ireland, which um, was founded. I can't remember the foundation year, but it's sort of dissipated in the last ten years or so. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that the whole idea of something like Sports History Island is quite significant in terms of, you know, if there's enough people who can make a club, then something's working out. Uh, and I think the sort of the development of Sports History Island alongside VSSH, Nash in the 
states and so on, is is a healthy sign that you've got enough people uh, in a room who are giving papers, who are working on a range of different things, um, who are also traveling outside the country, other people coming in, that you're getting a real, that real exchange of ideas. And I think that, that's helpful. Uh, and I think it also helps you get away from that Irish specificity argument all the time, mm-hmm. that because Ireland has a GA, it's different. You know, well, yes, it is, but actually radically, no, it's not. It's a, you know, you look at the GA, yes, it's amateur, yes, it's mass participatory and all those things we know that make it different. Um, but at the end of the day, it's also just a team field sport, which is the same as pretty much most of the major sports around the world. Um, I think it goes, goes, I mean, it goes back to your earlier question, I suppose, in terms of what remained to be done. I mean, I think, you know, people like Brian Griffin's work on cycling, um, those kind of minority sports inverted comments mm-hmm. uh, is there's a lot to be done in those kind of areas. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great to understand Irish croquet? Yes, I think it would be, but on Irish croquet, they're hardly going to, sorry, they're li- unlikely to build a career from it. So you've got to be realistic about what's achievable. I do think, I mean, it goes back to the idea of where the field is. I mean, I think. Um, next year, so 2024, um, myself, John Crowley and Cormac Moore are the editors of the um, Atlas of Irish Sport. Mm-hmm. So if you know those <coughs> non-Irish people won't be familiar with this, but University College Court Press have developed with their geography department these enormous books um, that run sort of four or five hundred pages, I think. Um, there's been an atlas of the Irish famine, an atlas of the revolution, there's been an atlas of Irish light- lighthouses, various other things. But they commissioned us a few, a few years ago to do one on sport. Now, off, these are off the top of my head. I mean, obviously, it's, it's going to be a couple of hundred maps. And for maps, you need huge amounts of data. Um, it's fully illustrated. And then there are, and again, I'm, I'm being loose here, there's somewhere in a region of 150 to 200 essays in it. Um, covering all chronologies, all sports, all counties and islands. You simply couldn't have done that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, who who worked on Irish swimming 20 years ago in a scholarly sense? Nobody. But now you can find somebody who worked on the Special Olympics. Nobody. But now you can find somebody. So, I, th- I mean, I think that's a real... Um, testament to the collective effort and the growth of the field and the ability of people to say you know what yes actually as a historian writing about this aspect of sporting culture is important and worthwhile uh, I think the fact that you can put to use a sporting metaphor to put such a big team together to produce such a big book as um, one of these University College Court atlases is amazing because I think if you look at something like the atlas of the Irish Revolution which obviously was time to coincide with the centenary of the beginning of the War of Independence. You could have written that book, albeit with a different group of people, thirty years earlier, because mm-hmm. there was still enough people who were going mining the archives, mining the private papers of the people who'd involved been involved in the, in the revolutionary years. Now, clearly, there were certain releases like the you pension bars, et cetera, that changed how we think about them. I simply don't think you could have done an Atlas of Irish Sport 30 years ago unless you'd employed every sports journalist in the country, and it would have been a very different beast because of it, because it would have not been rooted in academic scholarship. Um, 
so I think that's a sort of that's a, a real mark, if you like, of, of of the changes that have taken place in the last 20, 30 years vis-a-vis sports history in this country. And I think something actually to say about the Atlas, um, like I know Cormac approached me about it as a PhD student, but how encompassing it is that it, it reached everyone across the sort of academic life cycle. Like I know Julian, I think Connor Murray as well are involved. So like, yeah. you know, from a graduate level, it was amazing to be able to contribute at that stage. And it showed the sort of commitment to every every nook and cranny that you could possibly squeeze out of Irish sport history. Yeah. Um, I think also it's timely as well. I mean, it kind of goes back to, I suppose, my own trajectory and others like Paul Rouse and so on. I mean, you know, the beginning point was always the GAA mm-hmm. because it was the big one. It was a different one. It's the one that stood out from um, Britain and elsewhere. It's the one I think when British sports historians had written about, they quite often got it wrong. Um Therefore, there was this huge volume of work on the GA, which, you know, had to be done and was quite rightly done. Um, I just wonder if now we, in a way, what happened, I think in the first maybe decade, decade and a half of my career in writing about sports history, was the GA became too big in our kind of historiography. Uh, And I think we're now, your own work, people like Cormac Moore, and some approaching Higgins' work when she's doing the Sporting Heritage Project, etc. Uh, there has been a, cre- a corrective mm-hmm. that we now know way more about soccer than we did. Um, physical culture, uh, um, private clubs like golf clubs. I mean, Roisin's work on golf was, was stunning. Um, and I think it's that idea that we're now beginning to understand different things. I think, you know, again, Jimmy Kelly's work was brilliant because obviously when you talk about pre-1850s, pre-famine sports, the biggest horse racing mm-hmm. horse racing absolutely critical to understanding sports history in Ireland I think Jimmy Kelly absolutely got that right and did some brilliant work um, and yet conversely you know the Irish role of the bloodstock industry uh, the Irish racing fraternity in a British context in a context where gambling went mainstream horse racing went mainstream on television etc Really, again, academically, we probably know very little about that hmm. in, a, in a more modern post-1945 way. Um, but yeah, I think we're moving in the right direction. We, we, we are getting away from Ireland being an exceptional place. Um, we're getting beyond the GA being the only show in town. Um, I do think the one thing, I mean, again, it goes back to a <coughs> discussion I would have had with people like Dick Holt when I was living in in. Um, Leicester working there. I mean, Dick's quite unusual that he published on France and French sports history, which was his PhD, and then wrote Sport in the British afterwards. Um, that linguistically, he was able to kind of do two nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we always agreed um, collectively in Leicester that there was never a project that really properly encompassed a kind of European sports history. Mm-hmm that you could assemble kind of various people at a conference and start talking about different themes and different ideas. And I think what I mean in that context is just where are we with Irish sports history as this kind of transnational concept? Um, the Irish sports history is still not exclusively, but predominantly done within, within its own borders. 
and to a degree it's even done in an Irish context either side of the border. Um, but I mean, where is that work? And of Paul Darby's work, for example, um, on the Irish diaspora in the US in a sporting context, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not much of it. And I don't mean Paul's own work. I mean, there's not work that's looked at the Irish diaspora uh, in a sporting setting. Um, you know, are the experiences of somebody arriving in, you know, Boston in the 19th century the same in a sporting sense as somebody arriving in Australia or South Africa? You know, where does a GA exist? Where does sporting assimilation happen? You know, those kind of comparative studies. Uh, and I think that that also works within the kind of national sense of, you know, Irish sports history. Yes, we've got the GA, but, you know, where does that go when you just start, start explaining the actual the macro forces beyond sports? How do they work and function in Ireland when you compare them to Portugal, Spain, Italy, and so on? Um you know, is the idea of the Irish geographical closeness to Britain and its relationship with Britain problem problematically though it was, does it just make it a kind of regional version of the British sports rev- revolution or is there something happening which is generic? Um, so, yeah, I, I think the, the call to transnationalism is something that I'd be keen to do on. But obviously that comes with, you know, linguistic demands which are, you know, rare in academics unfortunately yeah. and it's also interesting so i know um Cormor, or not Cormor, sorry, uh, connor kearns published say the irish soccer migrants but you know sort of lacuna in the transnational sense is like something like paddy power which is you know and gambling in ireland because there is that sort of transnational commercialized sport bookmakers culture sort of that still is relatively modern but is playing off a sense of sort of irishness even today which I think it's probably yeah. something, something that needs to be looked at, but I'm not the person to do it because I'm not I'm not I'm not one of those people who can answer Ray's question of what are you counting. Yeah, I mean I know I mean Liam McCallaghan's been chipping away for a, for quite a while now on kind of uh, and he's published bits and pieces about the history of gambling, but I mean again it does it does raise all kinds of questions uh, again in a kind of an Irish setting because obviously a kind of religious con- um, religious construct as, as you say more lately the kind of Paddy Power phenomenon. Um, but again, it, it links back to that kind of the idea of the Irish bookmaker at places like Cheltenham or Aintree, um, that the, <coughs> within the sort of traditional betting sports, um, you know, the Irish were a hugely significant part of that. Um, and they would have been kind of, you know, illegal gambling in the US around sports would have had a huge kind of um, Irish brackets criminal element involved in that so i mean it's, you know again, again which goes back to kind of murray Coleman's work on the irish street state um which demonstrated that in the u.s so yeah i mean i think that that kind of wider transnational work is good i think also as well i mean <clears throat> i think i remember a few years ago which you remember that um edited volume that leanne lane and will murphy published mm-hmm. on yeah. leisure uh and i think that again is something that uh, in their introduction they said you know of all the bits of leisure one thing that's sort of been done kind of properly uh is sport which is true <laughs> i think in a way in our focus on sport we've lost that broader leisure time question um i remember had a phd student years ago um called ian clark who worked on sport in cornwall and what i loved about his work was he really put it into a leisure context and 
his point was if you chose kind of quite you know middle class well to do town like Truro in Cornwall in the late 19th century um the numbers of socially elite middle enough class men was quite small um but the, if you looked at their whole life not just their sporting life as a group they moved through you know the geographic society on monday the cricket club on tuesday the operatic club on wednesday that they lived a leisured life not just a sporting life uh, and i think again sometimes we lose a bit of a trick with uh an over focus on sport mm-hmm. um that if we understand fans, supporters, followers, call them what you will, yes, it's a big part of their life and we can say it's about identity, community and all those big themes. But I mean, those people, when we look at their non-working hours, sport may occupy quite a big chunk of that and they're going to read about it and going to listen to it, they're going to watch it. They're also really into their gardening or their hill walking or their classic cars i don't know what it may be but you know you in the same way very few people in ireland only watch rugby they watch rugby they watch soccer they watch ga they're they're into all kinds of sports most of those people are are into all kinds of leisure um and i think sometimes with with and i think that that's actually true of britain as well i think the relationship with leisure studies and sort of leisure history and sports history uh has necessarily been very weak um, but I think, again, that's something I'd be, it would be useful to kind of, as it were, kind of widen our horizons to see how does this peculiar thing of sport relate to other aspects of leisure. And I think this is good because I've given you and any Irish PhD students listening um, lots of future ideas, which we, <laughs> we, we, we can all collectively mine. So I am uh, conscious of your time. So I just want to, I end by saying thanks so much for this, Mike. I really do appreciate it. And no worries. Nice. Could have it's talked not... for a lot longer. <laughs> well, th- this is the problem. I d- we tend to chat and then I'm always conscious that someone will then look at the time and go, oh, Christ, that Connor fella's after knocking out my entire afternoon. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, Mike, Cron, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And yeah, we'll Brilliant. make sure thanks to much, promote the Irish uh, Atlas of Sport when it comes out.